Blog Talk Radio. Yeah. Mike, check. Mike, check. One, two. One, two. One, two. For you. Yeah. <laughs> you know what I'm saying? That. Biblical, biblical, theology, theology, study, the person of God, attributes. God's word is like a breeze in the tropics, and Jesus got the keys to the cockpit. He's the king, the priest, and the prophet, so please watch as we proceed with the topic. Uh, yeah. And that's biblical theology, that phrase alone, they give some people allergies. Uh, they say it's not practical enough, uh-huh. just give me Jesus, that will be enough. That seems plausible and logical. Nobody wants to be all cold and theological. But being a theologian is not optional. Because when you talk about Christ, you're saying something doctrinal. Either it accurately portrays his majesty, or it's a travesty, or worse, blasphemy. You can do a global search. This mark is crucial to the health of a local church. The Christian life is a difficult odyssey. The faithful are a statistical anomaly. The enemy wants to trick us hypnotically. That's why we need that biblical theology. Lord God, deliver us from apostasy. The human heart is given to idolatry. The situation is critical. We gotta see the importance of biblical theology. What do I mean by biblical theology? The whole theme of the scripture and God the key is following the Bible storyline and the ultimate goal is seeing God's glory shine. What he starts, he finishes with dedication, a work of art from Genesis to Revelation, from God's creation, creation. to man's fall to redemption to consummation. His designs and structure each time will fluster. What mind can instruct the divine conductor? His worthiness sits enthroned in the heavens sturdy and fixed. Romans 11:36. Biblical theology encompasses who God is, what he promises, and accomplishes. So clever we behold his endeavors unfold. The greatest, greatest story, story ever, ever told. told. The Christian life is a difficult odyssey. The faithful are a statistical anomaly. The enemy wants to trick us hypnotically. That's why we need that biblical theology. Lord God, deliver us from apostasy. The human heart is given to idolatry. The situation is critical. We got to see the importance of biblical theology. Yeah. The Lord has not decided to keep us guessing. Thank you, Lord. He gave us the word providing us correction. And the spirit for guidance and direction. Biblical theology is like protection from ourselves and our improper reflections so we can follow the Bible, not just our reflections. Otherwise, we will chop it into sections and not make the connections like the doctrine of election. And Satan is waiting to slice us in the mincemeat if our faith is a mile wide and an inch deep. Theology is like the root of a tree, which determines how rich the fruit's gonna be. And by God's grace, he'll breathe on us with his breath, lead us in his steps, show us his eagerness to bless. And we'll experience true peace within our death, because we'll know the meaning of Jesus and his death. The Christian life is a difficult odyssey. The faithful are a statistical anomaly. The enemy wants to trick us hypnotically. That's why we need that biblical theology. Lord God, deliver us from apostasy. The human heart is given to idolatry. The situation is critical. We gotta see the importance of biblical theology. All right, welcome to another edition of Theology Matters, and I'm your host, Devin Palu, and we're glad you guys are able to join us uh, again this week. 
I was actually I was out last week. I wasn't wasn't feeling too good, so my lovely bride uh, stepped in and did the interview for me with uh, apologist and theologian Robert Bowman. And uh, oh, I was so upset. I I missed that interview. He's uh, one of my one of my heroes of the faith, so to speak. And they did a, a two-hour show on the doctrine of the Trinity and had to uh, defend the doctrine of the Trinity and uh, kind of see what objections are coming to it. And um, it's a very good show. I thought it would be a good time to do that show this time of year with Christmas and everything. And, uh, you know, before we bring our guests on, let me just say real quick, you know, this time of year... Uh, Channels like Discovery Channel, History Channel, and a lot of these other channels, National Geographic, they really ramp up uh, the attack on the Christian faith. And they typically always go to guys like the Jesus Seminar or Bart Ehrman or other kind of liberal uh, scholars, and they really don't give the conservative scholars uh, much of a voice. And so be careful when you watch shows like that. I'm not saying don't watch them, but, uh, you know, at least hear the other side so you're not just hearing uh, propaganda, uh, especially with the Jesus Seminar, folks. These guys are way out in left field. Uh, New Testament scholarship certainly does not uh, agree with them at all. And so just be, be careful of what you hear. Just because it's on TV doesn't make it true. If you have not liked our, our Facebook page yet, uh, go to Theology Matters uh, uh, face, uh, slash Facebook.com, Theology Matters with the Palouse. And on our Facebook page, you will see we have a lot of our podcasts and articles and videos up. We've done a lot of great shows uh, in the past. I was, was counting the other day, went through. We, we've been on the show for about a year and a half and actually have almost 12,000 downloads, or actually over 12,000 downloads, uh, on different shows that we've done. And so, you know, check check some of those uh, shows that we've done out. Uh, out. We've, we've done several debates uh, with the Mormons, um, atheists, uh, did one recently on the doctrine of uh, hell, whether hell is eternal or whether the Bible teaches annihilationism. That was a, that was a good debate. So be sure to like our Facebook page for that. And I think that's about all, all I've got. And so we'll go ahead and, and jump into our show. Uh, the gentleman that we have, ha- that we have uh, we've had on here before. So I can pull up his information here. We've been doing a, a philosophy series, so to speak. Um, we did our first show. It's uh, with Dr. Greg Sadler. Uh, and I actually found him several, probably, I don't know, a year ago, two years ago, uh, perusing Facebook and saw his lectures uh, in, that he does on philosophy and being a, a lover of philosophy and and a lot of the people he discusses uh, just really enjoy his videos because he's able to really take a lot of these hard issues and just he puts them on the bottom shelf for guys like me. And uh, I contact them and He's been on our show uh, in the past. We did a show on St. Thomas Aquinas. And if you guys have not heard that show, again, that's in the archive. Be sure to listen to that one. And one of my favorites that we did was uh, on St. Anselm. I really enjoyed that interview. It was really 
really interesting uh, to hear because I, I didn't know a lot about, about St. Anselm. So tonight we're going to continue that study um, in our philosophy series on David Hume. Well, let me give you first a little bit about Dr. Sadler. Uh, he's an author and instructor at um, Mar East College. He received both his master's and Ph.D. in philosophy from Southern Illinois, Carbondale. He's uh, also the founder of Reason IO, an organization that brings philosophy into practice, making complex classical philosophical ideas accessible for a wide audience of professionals, students, and lifelong learners. So we are just really excited to have Dr. Sadler on the uh, line with us. Dr. Sadler, are you there? I am, and thanks for having me back on the show. Oh man, it's it's great to have you back on. I'm 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 hoping we can do quite a few of these shows just on different uh, you know profiles of of the philosophers. So, well, there's certainly enough of them that we could uh, we could do a whole series on them. Yeah, people have really really enjoyed the the one on uh, Thomas Aquinas and Saint Anselm. So. Uh, did I did I leave anything out? I I think I saw the other day on Facebook you had mentioned something about um, something about your philosophy videos. We're going to like Google Chrome or some type of something like that. Well, um, we've done a lot of videos. Uh, so I've been organizing them into playlists and. Right now, I'm, I'm still in the process of uh, putting together a lot of existentialism videos, and we could talk about some of those authors down the line perhaps sometime. Um, in the spring, I'm going to be doing a whole sequence on Hegel's Phenomenology of Spirit, this really dense book, and uh, I'm not sure how many videos it's going to take to work my way through it, but I've, I've got the, the self-imposed task of uh, working through the entirety of it. It may take me who knows, maybe a year or so to do that. Um, but that's that's the main stuff I've got going on with the, the YouTube videos. That's great. Yeah, I know that they're they're very very watched and people people certainly do enjoy them a lot. So we definitely, I can tell you, guys like me are thankful for them. So tonight, we're I guess we're gonna. Look at yeah, tonight I guess we're going to look at uh, David Hume a little bit. Is that right? Yeah, so we're kind of switching sides. Um, Hume is usually taken as being on the, on the anti-theism side, as being the one to knock down the traditional arguments for God's existence. And really, if you look at his works, he goes far beyond that. He attacks the, the very notion of being able to say anything meaningful about God that wouldn't um, just be a product of human imagination. So he's he's good to look at because he's he's been a major influence on a lot of critics of of, uh, of theism. Yeah, some some Christians might wonder why in the world would we want to even read or study this guy if he's so uh, you know uh, against theism? Why would you say that Christians and and students of philosophy should study? David Hume. Well, that's a good question. So uh, let me actually split it into the, the two different questions. Why should students of philosophy study him? Eh, because he's a, a major philosopher who, who contributed 
a lot of interesting ideas. Now, interesting doesn't necessarily translate to true, but if we're going to study Kant or Hegel or Nietzsche, then, then Hume certainly deserves it as well. But the, the thornier question is why should Christian also study Hume when he was really an opponent of Christianity, um, not just the Christianity of his, his own time and, and place, you know, Scotland, but um, Christianity more, more generally. You know, his, his, his works are full of these very genial attacks uh, on it. Well, because you want to know what the, um, the best arguments against your position are. And, and Hume makes some very strong and subtle arguments that are, you know, if you put them side by side with the, the sort of typical, um, typical atheist stuff that you find on blogs and YouTube, Hume is much more sophisticated. So if you can take on Hume and you can, you know, sort of work your way through his thought and find ways to address it, I think that it's sort of like putting on ankle weights in a lot of respect and then having to go run a race, you know. If you're, if you're dealing with um, the more mundane kind of attacks, it becomes a lot easier. And, you know, Hume is, is uh, he's kind of a paradoxical figure. If you read him carefully enough, you would find not only that he's attacking Christianity you know, his, of his own time and of other times, but that he also would be saying some things that um, a lot of the, the contemporary atheists wouldn't find all that palatable. Um, so he's a, kind of an interesting guy in that respect. Yeah, one of the things that you mentioned there was uh, kind of if if you look at some of the uh, the atheist YouTubers, uh, just the I guess the um, amount of unsophistication <laughs> in their arguments compared to uh, I guess to someone like David Hume, it's it's uh, it's pretty quite remarkable, isn't it? Well, you know, we the same thing was going on in his own time. Um, you, you've always got people making bad arguments on any topic you like. But what's nice about history is we, you know, we tend to, f we, we weed out the chaff. So um, we don't read a lot of the other people from Hume's time who are, who are making uh, arguments for or against. We, we read the people who are the real heavy hitters. And it gives you the impression that, um, you know, our own condition is, is, is some, something different, that, you know, the level of debate has somehow fallen to this new low, when really it's always been like that. Um, so, yeah, it's, I guess that's what I have to say about that. Okay, well, uh, just for people listening, we're going to open up the phone lines about 7 o'clock. I know there's a lot of people that are wanting to call in and uh, and have questions for Dr. Sadler, so we'll we'll do that in about 45 minutes. And uh, we'll continue just to kind of keep teaching. And then if we uh, if we get phone calls, great. If not, we'll just let Dr. Sadler continue to uh, to kind of take us through this outline. So, uh, Dr. Sadler, I kind of turn it over to you and tell us uh, who who is David Hume. Well, he is a 18th century philosopher, solidly in the middle of the the Enlightenment, and living in Scotland, although traveling around quite a bit. Uh, from time to time, but born in Scotland and, and primarily living in, and working in that area. Uh, and Scotland at that time was undergoing a kind of 
intellectual renaissance as well. So he's a contemporary of, of other Enlightenment figures like the, the encyclopedias like Diderot and d'Alembert in France. Uh, Jean-Jacques Rousseau was uh, somebody who he had contact with. Uh, he actually had a falling out with Hume um, towards the end of, of, of Hume's life. And he's a key British empiricist philosopher. So he belongs in this, this tradition that begins with people like Hobbes and Locke um, and then goes through uh, Bishop Barclay. And then Hume is sort of at the culmination of, of that. And he's, he's an interesting guy in that he, he kept a lot of his religious views under wraps, so to speak. Um, he ended up not getting two different university posts that he applied for just because of his reputation uh, of being an atheist and being a skeptic. He, he tried to get a chair at Glasgow and a chair at Edinburgh and was turned down uh, from, from both of them. Um, and he, he also ended up, you know, for a while, trying to leave out parts of his work that he thought might, might be offensive to religious believers. And then towards the end of his, his life, um, started incorporating much more of that into to his work. He was pretty influential, and this is one of the reasons why he's, he's so important in the history of philosophy. He, he not only gets, gets Kant going, you know, Kant talks about being shaken from his dogmatic slumber by, by Hume's attack on, on cause and effect, but he also influenced uh, Jeremy Bentham, the father of utilitarian philosophy. He influenced his friend Adam Smith, uh, who we know from uh, the you know this theory of capitalism, but also from the theory of the sentiments that that he develops. Um, Darwin and Huxley both you know acknowledge their sort of debt to Hume, and in Anglo-American philosophy, so in, in, in analytic philosophy, there's there's a kind of uh, debt to Hume as well. I don't think he's as much read as he used to be but a lot of the categories that he put in place, uh, people still think in, in those terms. So, you know, we're talking about somebody who's, who's writing, his early works are, are, you know, 1739, 1740, and he's writing all the way through to his death um, in the, the late 1700s. Then... Um, one of his works, the one that we're going to talk about quite a bit tonight, The Dialogues Concerning Natural Religion, is published posthumously in 1779. So that kind of gives you an idea of where he fits in into history. So he's a much more recent figure than the ones that we've looked at so far. All right, that's, that's quite a lot. That's a pretty, pretty good introduction. Who would we say that... Uh, uh, Hume actually influenced as far as I know you'd mentioned a couple of the, the other philosophers, but uh, who, who are some of the guys you think that he influenced? By the way, I'm just I'm having a little technical problems with, uh, with the phone for a moment, so um, if you can't hear me or if I miss something I can, and I repeat a question, forgive me, I'm, I'm working on it, but uh, maybe tell us a little bit about who did uh, Hume influence. Well, um, like I mentioned, the Kant and, and Bentham and Smith were, were major figures, and he's, he's played a pretty important role in British philosophy all the way down to the present. Um, so he kind of sets the, uh, the categories for a lot of philosophical discussion. And... <clears throat> 
you know, I, I suppose you could say that his influence extends as well through Kant, because Kant is reacting to him into German philosophy. They, they see themselves in part as having to deal with the effects of, of his, his uh, criticism. Um, now, Hume wrote a number of important works, and his first work uh, is, is the Treatise on, on Human Nature, and he, he has this story that it fell stillborn from the press, meaning that nobody ever bought it. But it, it actually didn't do too bad. Um, it, it just didn't sell particularly well. And he ends up taking portions of it and turning those into the next major works that he publishes, which actually catch on much better. Um, the Inquiry Concerning Human Understanding and the Inquiry Concerning the Principles of Morals. Um, before that, he, he publishes a, a whole set of essays. You know, they're called Essays, Moral and Political, and they're kind of all over the map. You know, He discusses uh, the Stoics and, and a number of different issues and what's going on at the theater when we're watching the theater. And this is the stuff that actually made his, his reputation more than the systematic work. It uh, got people wa you know, listening to him. Um, then he writes... Uh, and this may, seem, uh, uh, this may seem kind of a strange um, interruption in his life. He writes a six-volume history of England, which uh, comes out over, over a number of years from, from 1754 to 1762. And this ends up making him a fairly wealthy man. It, it, it uh, does quite well. And he continues writing, and he eventually publishes... Um, these four dissertations, he kind of changes, changes them around a bit, takes out some of the, the essays that he thought might be too objectionable, um, but he includes the natural history of religion, which is one of the texts I want to look at tonight in that. And then finally, he, he's working on, but he doesn't publish the dialogues concerning natural religion before he, he dies, and then that's published afterwards. Well, um, one of, one of the one of the people I was just curious that uh, you said that he had influenced was Charles Darwin. I was just curious. Yeah. yeah, what were some of the ways that he had influenced Darwin? That I don't know that much about. Darwin seems to have seen himself as indebted to Hume. You know, the the emphasis on empirical investigation. Um, you know, Hume is. He's writing a natural history of religion, which uh, you know, the critics, when they look at it, they say, well, this isn't actually natural history at all uh, in, in the classic sense. Um, but this this sort of looking for uh, the associations between things and being willing to, to, you know, in a human universe, anything could really turn into anything, you might say. It doesn't mean that it's probable that it'll, it'll do so but there's always the outside chance. You can't rule it out according to Hume. And so I think that was, that was a kind of shaking things up idea for, for quite a few people in, in his own epoch. Um, and, and Darwin is, is you know, following not that long after, after all of that. I couldn't quite hear you. Uh, I think you're having phone troubles again. Well, 
Um, why don't I talk about some of the key ideas that we're going to see Hume deploying? Uh, because I think having some of those under our belt will help us understand what, he, what he's trying to do with his arguments. So Hume is committed to what we call empiricism. And this is the notion that all of our, all of our knowledge, all of our ideas ultimately come from experience. So they're coming from the, either from the outside or from our own reflection upon ourselves. They're not coming from some sort of, uh, you know, God revealing anything within our, 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 ourselves, you know, within our psyche, our soul, our mind. Uh, and somebody like Augustine, you know, had, had a, you know, with the notion of illumination. Um, they're not coming solely from reasoning the way, the way they're... I'm sorry, I'm sorry, I can't hear... Um... Uh, okay, can, can you hear me okay now, Dr. Sadler? I, I can now, yes. Okay, sorry about that. Seems like when you call, we have the, that's when we have our, our phone problems. I apologize. Go, go ahead with what you were saying. Well, that's all right. So, so empiricism holds that all of our knowledge, all of our, all of our ideas ultimately are coming from, from experience. So not coming from reasoning, about things, uh, unless we've already got experience to sort of process through reasoning, and they're not coming from some sort of illumination from within or any sort of implanted or infused ideas. Um, so what, when he begins from that basis, he is going to draw a lot of conclusions from that. And among those are going to be what we call the copy principle, this notion that all of our ideas that we have are derived in some way from impressions that are coming either from the outside or a reflection on our, our own selves. So that's going to really limit, that's going to sort of set the horizons for what is conceivable, uh, what, is, what we can reason about, what we can make arguments about. Um, Another key idea, and if you're going to read Hume, it's good to know these terms, is the distinction between the a priori and the a posteriori. And the a priori for Hume is identified with connections of ideas. He used that, that term connections. And so the a priori is that which is independent of experience. And it doesn't really cover very much for Hume. All it includes are, are what we can associate together as ideas, and it's very abstract. And then we have the a posteriori, meaning that which is coming after experience, posterior to experience, so coming from experience. And that is quite rich, and that we can actually draw upon. But the trouble is, anything a posteriori is going to be, at best, probable. It's not going to be something we can be absolutely certain about, that we can draw you know, generalizations that, that are uh, always applicable about. We can only say, well, in my experience, or in the experience of all the people I'm consulting, it's turned out this way all of the time, so we, can, we have some you know, reasonable grounds for thinking so. Hume uh, also attacked causality itself. And this is what, what brought him on to the radar of people like uh, Immanuel Kant. Hume said that when we get down to it, we really don't understand cause and effect. Uh, 
we, we assume that we do, and we behave as if we do, but we don't really know what it is in a cause that would bring about the effect or that they're always going to follow each other in that kind of sequence. We just sort of associate that over time uh, by habit and by, by you know, sort of correlating our experiences. He calls this the process of association. And so it produces this kind of feeling that, well, this thing you know, is here, this cause, and then the effect must follow from it. When we don't really know that for, for, for certain, uh, and this, this threw a lot of people for a loop because, you know, a lot of arguments were based on the very notion of causality. Once you throw causality out, it seems, it seems like every, anything could go, right? Uh, natural, natural theology especially, right, is really kind of centered around that. So that's, that's a pretty devastating critique of, of, um, of, of general revelation, well, not general revelation, but natural theology, I guess, right? Yeah, it's going to be really, um, it's going to have its greatest effects on any sort of cosmological argument because they're, they're you know, arguing about the nature of causality itself and saying every effect must have a cause. Hume says, well, maybe not. Um, now, it's not going to affect um, certain, you know, a posteriori arguments like the design argument, the, the teleological argument. Hume has his own ways of attacking that, and we'll look at those in, in a little bit. Um, he also has this, this interesting, I mean, it, 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 there's one statement that you hear uh, by Hume said the most, it's probably reason is and can never be more than the slave of the passions. So Hume thinks that um, reason by itself is, is fairly impotent. It doesn't do an awful lot. You have to have some material to work upon first, and reason can't even like make itself, can't actuate itself. It can't get itself to, to, to start thinking about things and, and you know, figuring them out. Uh, we have to be motivated by some sort of passion, some sort of emotion, some sort of interest, some sort of drive or, or desire. And so that always makes reasoning a little bit suspect, and it means that um, you can't rely on people, most people, to do an awful lot of reasoning. Now, he's going to import some of these ideas into thinking about, about religion. So Hume will say, for example, in the, uh, the uh, um, natural history of religion, that the origin of religion is not something like people looking at the world and doing natural theology. Uh, you know, if you think about the way natural theology would work, you've got people looking at the universe, or he likes the example of looking at the human hand and seeing how you know, intricate its design is and how, how well adapted it is to everything. And then you know, sort of reasoning from that, what could have created that? It must be something greater than than that that effect, and, and you know, eventually right. we're going to a some sort of, some sort of transcendent designer. Hume says, ah, nobody actually thinks that way. Well, maybe a few philosophers, but but they're always totally in the minority, and the ordinary person doesn't think about that. So so where did religion come from then? So Hume thinks that that it arises actually because of our our passions and our desires, and so what we see here is a very um, early form of the same sort of basic idea that you're going to find in other authors saying that religion is, is essentially an expression of human needs. 
an, ex- an expression of human desires, something that is being projected onto the cosmos um, based on how, how pitiable and, and miserable we are. And Hume thinks that along, along with this goes the fact that we don't, we don't really know what causes things. So we assume that there's something mysterious going on behind the scenes. And then we project onto all of this the idea that the beings that are responsible, or the being, if we get to monotheism, must be like us. Because you know, the only kinds of beings that we, we really have any knowledge of would be animals and ourselves. And so we project onto, you know, the divinity, all sorts of attributes that are, that are coming from human beings. And then he thinks that social processes sort of carry this out over time and consolidate these ideas within cultures. Um, so what you've got here is a very sophisticated, um, although I think ultimately sort of, you know, it's got some holes in it, but a very sophisticated narrative trying to account for why people would have religious ideas in the first place, why people would have the ideas of, of gods, and then later on of a, a single, you know, transcendent, uh, all-powerful, perfect, infinite God. Um, Hume has other things that he says about religion as well. He, he, he's pretty famous for attacking the very notion of miracles. Um, he's not unique in, in doing so, he's you know he's sort of at one with the encyclopedia in saying that a miracle is essentially a violation of the law of nature, and so if we want to believe that anything is a miracle on testimony of somebody, then we what we want in that is for the miracle to be more likely than that the person would um, be mistaken or 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 lie, and since it's always more plausible that the person would be mistaken or lie, then we can discount any sort of miracle we want. Um, so he's going to, you know, he's going the, the sort of route of the Enlightenment thinkers and rejecting any sort of miraculous circumstances. So, you, you know, think about what that would do to Scripture. Um, yeah, the human, human would, would not do this himself, but Thomas Jefferson is kind of a good representative going through and and cutting out all the parts where he thought there was something miraculous, and you wind up with a Bible full of many little holes, and uh, not, not, not very long. Um, now, Hume also, he, you know, he contrasts monotheistic religion against polytheistic religion. And he, whenever he does so, he's, he's always doing sort of a... Um, a disguised, well, not always disguised, sometimes he just comes straight out, but he does a kind of, um, in many cases, a kind of disguised praising monotheistic religion when really thinking that nobody actually believes, you know, the sort of thing that he's, he's praising. So he talks about, you know, the notion of, of God that you would find in, in, in uh, uh, monotheistic religions where God is infinite, God is, is perfect, God is, you know, above everything, the creator of all. And he, um, he thinks that these sort of ideas actually lead to, necessarily, to some sort of uh, intolerant attitude. The polytheists were much more live and let live. You know, you've got your Zeus, I've got my Apollo. Um, if I run into, uh, you know, somebody else who's got other gods, I'll just, you know, say that they're more or less like, like mine and, and maybe bring their idols over to, to my place. Um, he, he portrays the polytheists as being much more uh, 
tolerant to each other. And he also contrasts monotheistic religion against polytheistic religion in terms of its, its uh, effect on human mores. So whereas the Greeks celebrated these heroes like Hercules who could you know, then assume a semi-divine status or even generals like Brasidas who, you know, who were accorded a, a kind of a cult status at one time, um, monotheists are much more you know, into humility, into asceticism, into mortification, into you know, making themselves lowly in, in relation to their their deity because they've set him so high above them. So Hume thinks that this leads to what he calls, whenever he uses the word monkish, it's always a pejorative term for, for Hume. So it leads to monkish ways of, uh, and values. And then the last thing I want to say about this before going and looking at some, some actual arguments is that Hume is going to try to show that no arguments for God's existence really work. Um, that they never do what you want them to do. And he's got a lot of different ways to try to to make a case for this. So I think it's kind of interesting to go to the two main works where he, he's, he's talking about this sort of thing. Um, he does it somewhat in the natural history of religion, but really brings out all the guns in the dialogues concerning natural religion, the one that is published posthumously. That, well, that's, that's interesting. I'm, I'm kind of of the, uh, the, the reformed stripe, of the Calvinist stripe in my theology. And what I notice in, in, uh, in my circles, unfortunately, is uh, there really is kind of a reaction against natural theology. And so I would I would actually be much more like with Roman Catholicism as far as uh, classical apologetics and, and natural theology and that. Uh, but it's funny because a lot of the, you know, the presuppositional apologists that sometimes I'll talk to will say uh, that they don't think arguments uh, for God work either, um, I guess as far as some of the classes. And they actually... Some of them go as far to say that to give arguments for God's existence is, is actually sinful. So it's, it'll be interesting. I'm just wondering if, if maybe if um, Hume kind of contributed to that. I know another view of Scripture, and that does, does as well, but I find that kind of an interesting comparison. Yeah, and, and I mean, you can find others, too. Kier, Kierkegaard, um, who liked his philosophy, he... he says arguments for God's existence never do what they're supposed to do. You're always sort of presupposing things from the beginning. Uh, and then, you know, people like Bart afterwards are sort of out Kierkegaard and Kierkegaard in, in that respect. Um, with, with Catholics, um, it, 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 they're kind of all over the map if you're, if you're talking in sociological terms, if you're actually to go around and poll a bunch of, of Catholic scholars or, or just the, the average Catholic. The tradition is, yeah, that there's a, a natural theology is possible and there's all sorts of ways to get into it, but I, I think that quite a few people aren't, aren't very conversant with it. And there were people like, you know, Peter Damien, who in the Middle Ages um, argued that not only that philosophy, but even grammar was a tool of the devil. So you're not going to find somebody like that being receptive to natural theology, you know. Um, I mean, Peter Damien and, and Anselm, 
if I'm if I'm not mistaken, actually belong to the same religious order, the Benedictines. So it shows you just how how far of a distance they could be from each other. So um, let me talk a little bit about what's going on in these these two works. Um, the the dial the um, natural history of religion. Hume is doing something that is a little bit like what some other thinkers before him have done, including Thomas Hobbes, trying to trying to show that there's uh, some sort of origin for religion in human passions, in human needs, and that the social processes that we're largely unaware of then then elevate these these. Uh, um, the products of our passions into deities. In the dialogues concerning natural religion, there's a much more robust correspondence between that and one of the authors that Hume particularly liked, which is Cicero. Cicero has a dialogue called On the, the Nature of the Gods, where you have three people, and they're all debating uh, the nature of the gods and whether you can prove that God exists or not. Um, you have a Stoic, a Skeptic, and a uh, Epicurean, and then you have Cicero just sort of observing on the, on the sidelines. And Hume sets up a dialogue with three interlocutors: a Skeptic, a you could call him a sometimes they call him a dogmatist, um, somebody who who's committed to the notion that you can have uh, some good experientially based arguments for God's existence, and then somebody who gets called a mystic. Uh, about halfway through. And so, you know, the very form of what Hume is doing there is is sort of copying what Cicero is doing. But he's, he's, he's using it to somewhat different effects. And some of the key ideas that, that are going to run through these texts is that there's a, a fundamental difference between philosophers or theologians' conception of God, which is a very... Um, refined, kind of abstract notion of God. And then there's that of the ordinary believer. And the ordinary believer is where the great, you know, weight lies. And that's what, what you know, really influences people, Hume thinks. It's not what the, the philosophers or the theologians think. It's, it's really what the, the mass of the people do. Um, religious believers, for Hume, can't get onto the same page. And in, in the dialogue, what he's trying to do is set these guys up so that they'll get into arguments with each other and tear each other down. Um, so this is what I call Hume's skeptical strategy. He, in both of these works, what he does is something that's right out of the playbook of ancient skepticism, which is you, you set your opponents up so that they'll battle each other and show each other's positions to have some flaws in them. And then you can say, well, I'm not going to accept any of you. I, I have good reason to think that you're all wrong, and now I'm just going to walk off the scene and do my own thing. Um, and if you, if you look at Hume's dialogues, that's exactly what's, what's happening there. The, he doesn't have any one single person make all of the attacks on religion or on the notion of God being the way that we think that God is or on, on arguments for God's existence. He has a little bit of it over here and then another person doing a little bit here and another person doing a little bit here. But the cumulative effect of the work is to try to show that none of this stuff really works. None of this is believable. 
And so it's a, it's a very sophisticated strategy that he's pursuing. And in many respects, on a rhetorical level, I don't want to say that, you know, that it should work this way, but on a rhetorical level, it's much more powerful than if you'd just written a, a book called Why I Think God Doesn't Exist and Why Your Arguments About God Are No Good. Um, if, you, if you have you know, human interlocutors going back and forth and, and discussing this with each other, it kind of makes it easier to buy into, you could, you could say. So let me talk, since we have uh, about 15 minutes left before... Uh, we take the break. What's, what's actually going on in the first book, The Natural History of Religion? There is some discussion of rational arguments for the existence of God. And what Hume is saying there, he's not actually attacking them in the same way that he will in the dialogues. He's saying, yeah, you can make these arguments, but nobody really does. This is not the way that ordinary human beings come to know anything about, about God or the universe. Um, and so he's trying to propose an alternate explanation for why human beings have conceptions of, about God. And then, you know, if you can say, well, everybody's conception is really coming from their passions and their imagination and needs and wants on their part, that allows you then to say, well, their, their ideas are probably false. Um, right. Weirdly enough, he actually does in one point, and I, I, you know, I, he can't possibly be um, speaking seriously here on his own part, non-ironically. He says, um, the universal propensity to believe in invisible intelligent power, if not original instinct, being at least a general attendant of human nature, may be considered a kind of marker stamp which the divine workman has set upon his work. Um, and this, this looks like, you know, a, an argument for God's existence that Hume would then be making. But later on, towards the end of the work, he'll take anything like that back. So he couldn't really be serious about it at that, that point. And it's kind of a weird deviation to make. Um, the work is, is kind of fun because he engages in, in some, some interesting thought experiments. You know, he, his explanation for polytheism is that we don't arrive at that by actually looking at the world, at nature. Because then if we did that, we'd actually figure out that there's, you know, one designer of all this because it's all, you know, one harmonious whole. But if we look at human affairs, like politics, for example, right, or right. how things play out in a household, what we see is a whole bunch of discordant wills that, that don't jibe with each other and they're doing different things. And that's where we get the, the polytheistic conception like. And so he does a little bit of science fiction, actually, in this work. And he says, that's probably what other worlds are like. Not our own world, but that's probably what other worlds are like. They're ruled by, you know, uh, a whole bunch of little godlets. Um, and then he just sort of passes from, from there. Um, he has another really funny thought experiment, um, which is very, very cynical, where he says um, he's trying to make the point that the religion and morality don't really, don't really um, uh, work together. And he says, imagine that, that God himself would say, look, I don't want you to do anything 
you know, for me other than be good. Be good to each other. And, uh, you know, if you, can point, you can point to scriptural passages where God actually does say stuff like, I don't want sacrifice, I want justice and mercy. But l- let's put that aside. So he, he says, um, imagine that God would actually make this really clear to human beings. No other stuff, just morality. And imagine okay. that he appointed a bunch of priests, and these priests are going to, the only thing they're going to do in, in the services is going to preach this message. Um, he says there'd be some people out there, guaranteed, who would actually not do the right thing, and they would say going to those those services is what makes you a good person. Um, and he 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 may in fact be right when it when it comes to that that some people would. Um, so he's got a lot of funny things going on there. Um, now in the Dr. Settler, let me just jump in for just one second. Uh, we've got some people that are on the line and waiting, and I just wanted to let you guys know, just, just hold tight. Uh, in about 10 minutes or so, about 7 o'clock, we're going to open the phone line. So, uh, you know, don't go anywhere. Just about 10 minutes, we'll go ahead and open the phone line and uh, kind of let Dr. Sadler finish his, his talk here on Zoom before we start taking some calls. So, so go ahead, uh, back to you there, Dr. Sadler. Okay, so in the dialogues concerning natural religion, like I said before, he's got these three characters, and they're all supposed to be friends with each other, and they're all pretty learned. Um, There's one called Cleanthes, and he's an advocate of arguments by analogy or design arguments, arguments that say that the world must have some sort of intelligent creator who, you know, set everything up the way that it ought to be, who arranged all the, the causes and effects in, in order, um, but who also is given towards a, 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 an anthropomorphizing that the other characters say that that can't possibly be good. Um, then there's Damia, and Damia is an advocate of, of what Hume calls a priori arguments. So what we're talking about is cosmological arguments, you know, arguments from causality. Um, and he... He doesn't like uh, Cleanthes anthropomorphizing of God. He says, look, if you're going to have a God, the God has to actually be infinite, perfect, uh, way beyond our comprehension. And so he gets called a mystic by, by Cleanthes. And then you have this guy, Philo. And Philo is a skeptic. So he doesn't actually buy into to any of this, although he, he espouses a kind of fideism in the very end, um, very much like, like uh, in Cicero's dialogue, where it turns out that the skeptic is also a fideist. Um, and, and nobody's quite sure when reading this who exactly is supposed to be speaking for Hume at any given time. Most people think it's Philo, because he's a skeptic. But Philo's committed to some things that, that Hume himself might not be willing to do. But Philo does get to make some really interesting points. So I'm, I'm not going to be able to go through all the different arguments that are, that are made in this. Um, actually, if you're, if you're, let me put in a picture of some YouTube videos. If you're really interested in this, this sort of thing, um, I have videos on um, the dialogues concerning natural religion and concerning uh, the... Uh, natural history of religion. Each, each video is about an hour, so you can get a, a bit more in-depth study. So I'm just going to hit on some of the highlights. Um, in um, part two, Cleanthes lays on the table something that they're going to 
they're going to work at the entire time. And it's this notion that the world and its parts are basically complex machines, really well designed. So our bodies are, are very well-designed machines. You know, everything around us is. And so we can know by analogy by saying, well, you know, machines have to have designers. And we look at the universe. The universe is really, really complex. That must have to have a designer as well. And the designer is going to be like human beings in, in having a mind. It's going to have certain qualities that are, that are like ours. So Philo argues, and this argument is going to get continued through the entire work, that um, a posteriori inquiry, so based on experience, based on analogy, is actually importing this idea of design and designer to, to make sense of the universe that it's experiencing. That's, that's a, a, an interesting attack. Instead of just saying well, we don't actually see any design there, or um, as he will say later, maybe it doesn't show the kind of designer that we want. He's saying you're actually kind of importing to the phenomena that you're studying. You're, you're, you're uh, placing onto it this very notion of design. You're reading it in where, where it doesn't necessarily have to be. Um, and then he goes on and says, here's the real problem, though. All of our inferences about facts, everything that we can possibly know from experience, are based on experience. And we can say that similar causes should have similar effects. So, you know, if I, I trip and fall because my shoelace, he doesn't use this example, but I'll use it. If I trip and fall because my shoelaces are tied right now, uh, and then I stumble over a stone, I can sort of identify the common element in it, which is tripping over something or being impeded in some way, and I can start drawing inferences, right? These are what analogies are. The problem is, he says, we have to be really careful when there's significant differences between the things that we're trying to compare. And, and what are we trying to compare here? Well, we're going from human beings and the things that we know about them to God, to some sort of being that's going to be infinitely higher than us. So how are we going to have an analogy that we can be sure that we can trust in? And since, since we are a little bit short on time, I'm actually just going to skip ahead to one of the things uh, that, that uh, Philo uses to try to drive this home. And he says, you know, if you want to make analogies about the universe and you want to say that the universe must have had a single providential creator, is that really what you would derive from looking at the world? Or could you imagine other possibilities? And so he runs through a list of them, and I'm going to give you six of the ones that he talks about. He says, um, could be that the world is perfect, but it might be made by a designer who's actually quite stupid and just copied somebody else's work. So there's, no, that wouldn't get you out of the God problem, right? Because then you say, well, the one he copied from, that's the, that's, that's the real God then, right? But he's bringing this up to, to try to drive doubts. The second one, he says, this world might be the best in a long line of previously, previous bad but progressively better worlds. So this is like, you know, model 20A or something like that. Um, then he says, uh, you know, another possibility, maybe the world was designed by a whole committee of gods. 
maybe you know this one worked on this part, this one worked on this part, and when they disagreed, they kind of hashed it out. Um, or he says maybe the gods are so much like human beings that they actually reproduce the way that, that, that we do. And that has something to do with the worlds. Or this could be the first effort, you know, at, at a, a world making by some god who then abandoned it because it wasn't a very good product. Or maybe a very, very old god made this world, and then he died off, but the world is still there. And so, you know, we're going to more and more ridiculous pictures um, as he's right. doing this. And Hume is not actually saying that he thinks that perhaps God died, you know, a la Nietzsche. But what he's trying to do is he's trying to say, if you want to make these arguments by analogy, you really have to be careful because, you know, these analogies could lead us in a lot of different directions. And why is this direction more plausible than, than uh, that direction? So, brilliant. you know, it, what's that? Yeah, that, that's pretty brilliant, isn't it? Yeah, I, I mean, I think there's responses that could be could be made to that. Um, right. But it, it is a, you know, he, he was, why did he spend so much time attacking arguments from design? Because not, he's right, not a lot of people actually um, make cosmological arguments, let alone ontological arguments. Many more people, when they think about religion, they're thinking about arguments from design. It was a popular way of um, trying to convey truth about, about you know, God, creation, the world, um, human beings. And that was taken as sort of like the proof. You know, if you, if you look at William Paley, who's, who's um, you know, roughly a contemporary, the guy that we know from talking about the design argument, if you actually read right. books, they're like one big, long design argument, you know, they're, they're, which makes them very boring, actually, because, you know, let me talk now about the hand. Let me talk now about the eye. Let me talk about this. Um, but that's what they were really into at the time. Um, now, you know, one of the characters, Damia, is he, he's a religious believer, and he's saying, yeah, I, I agree with the skeptic. These, these design arguments, they aren't any good. They anthropomorphize God. Um, there's all sorts of flaws with them. That's why we need cosmological arguments. And that's, that's where he, uh, you know, he goes. Uh, and then Hume tries to point out some, some problems with those as well. I, yeah, I'd like to hear them. Let's do this, Dr. Sadler. Let me go ahead and uh, let us take about a three-minute break or so, three, three-and-a-half minutes. Let me go ahead and open up the phone line so people can call in. And the number to call is 760-542-3907, 760-542-3907. We'll go ahead and take this uh, quick break, about three minutes, and then we will be back uh, with your questions for Dr. Sadler. And we'll continue to uh, look at David Hume and uh, look at how to maybe respond to some of these things like his arguments against miracles and the design argument, etc. This is John MacArthur inviting you to join me for Portraits of Grace. Men, have you ever been at work and realized you forgot to shave? Well, that's a good illustration of what it means to hear God's word and forget to respond. James said, if anyone is a hearer of the word and not a doer, he's like a man who looked at his natural face in a mirror. 
This is not some casual glance either, but a careful, observant stare. Yet even a long, hard look is worthless if you walk away and forget what you saw. If you fail to respond because the image reflected in the mirror will soon fade when you don't make the corrections. Perhaps you've been putting off something that you know God's Word is instructing you to do. If so, don't delay. This is John MacArthur trusting that you'll look into the Word of God and become a true portrait of grace. But God demonstrates His own love towards us in that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. Much more than having now been justified by His blood, we shall be saved from the wrath of God through Him. The word justified means that you and I stand before God acceptable, spotless, pure, and without sin. That God looks at us and says, there is no sin in that man. There is no sin in that woman. That He looks at us and we are now just in His sight. So all the blasphemy that we've done by choosing stuff over God, all the blasphemy that we've lived in by saying my way is better than God's, all the blatant sin of saying creation is better than God's is removed and God sees us as just. Much more than having now been justified by His blood. This is great news. Nothing about your effort in that test at all. Nothing about your might, your religious stamina, your morality, your cleaning yourself up. You have been justified by an act of God. Bottom line, you have not earned right standing in front of God by your effort or your cleaning up of your life. We have been made pure standing blameless in front of God, not because of any kind of religious or moral pursuit, but because Christ died. And in His death, He absorbed all of God's wrath for you and I. And that's why the Bible says that for the children of God, we are not appointed to suffer wrath. Because the wrath bestowed upon you and I was absorbed by Christ's death. All right, welcome back to Theology Matters. I'm your host, Devin Palou, and I've got our guest, Dr. Sadler, with us, and we are discussing uh, David Hume and uh, going to be hopefully looking at a few more of his objections and how we as theists respond uh, to some of these objections. So with that being said, Dr. Sadler, we've got a gentleman who's been on the phone actually for most of the hour. I feel bad for not, oh, wow. for not getting to him, but uh, let me go ahead and go to him, and I'll have him, him ask you a question. Caller, are you there? Yeah. Can I get your, your name and where you're calling from? Uh, are you waiting for me or somebody else? Yeah, you, uh-huh. Oh, hey, dude, it's Chris. Hey, Chris, how's it going, man? I'm good. I, I'm the one that's been on for most of the hour. <laughs> I, I feel yeah. like I, I feel like I just drank from a bottle of wine from a philosopher giving me some uh, some shots of David Hume. I feel kind of <laughs> drunk after uh, drinking from that fire hose. That was really good stuff, man. 
Well, you uh, so Dr. You, Sadler, uh, I was just go ahead. Yeah, go ahead. Go ahead and take your time and and uh, and ask whatever you like. There's no one else right now on the line, so feel free to to uh, take some time oh. and, and uh, talk with them. Well, I will take my time. That's awesome. Uh, Dr. Sadler, I was just wondering about the problem of induction. Um, I uh, I know that some Christian apologists, um, especially like the, from the presuppositional school, will answer the problem of induction by saying something like, um, well, you know, we believe in a sovereign God who sustains the world by his providence and power and therefore we can expect that the future will be like the past and so we don't have a problem with induction um, and so they do kind of like a world view you know comparison um, you know I guess my first part of the question is do you think that's a good way to answer it and then secondly um, I remember trying trying to read Timothy McGrew's article um it was called, uh, I think, Direct Inference and the Problem of Induction, and it had a whole bunch of, it had like Bayes' theorem type stuff in there and uh, some other guy, some other mathematician, stuff that I just really didn't understand. So do you, do you think we need to uh, resort to mathematical formulations in order to solve the problem of induction and just talk about just different levels of probability? Or do we need to go for something like the certainty of faith uh, that we get from like an Augustinian epistemology? Well, I mean, for Hume, there isn't really a problem of induction. Um, he's perfectly willing to say that we can make all sorts of probable inferences about things and do so on the basis of our, our experience. And he goes so far as to say that um, he thinks human nature is constant uh, you know, across the board. So if you put two different people in the same kind of circumstances, they should have more or less the same kind of experiences. So he doesn't have that sort of issue, but the kind of inductions that, that Hume is going to restrict you to uh, are going to rule out a lot of things that the theist is going to want to to have in the picture. Okay. So, you know, his his notion of experience, as here, here's one of the ways I think that you can actually sort of attack Hume. I think that you can say that his notion of experience is a little bit uh, too limited, that okay. he's not a, as good of an empiricist as, a, empiricist as he ought to be. People like like uh, Liam Shestoff, uh, who actually draws on Hume quite a bit, and who's like, very much like Kierkegaard, uh, although Kierkegaard's not drawing on Hume, but he's very much like Kierkegaard in his philosophy, are, are doing this sort of thing, saying, well, you know, if you're going to open up things and say, well, things could be this way or things could be this way, why would you sort of rule out summarily any sort of claims that theists might want to make. Um, and, and I don't think Hume would actually have a good response to that. Um, by the way, I'm not a Humean. I'm, 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 uh, right. I'm just somebody who, sort of like with Hobbes, I love reading Hobbes and, and I like thinking out some of his ideas, but I don't actually uh, buy into quite a bit of Hume's program. Mm -hmm. um, now, you, you, were, you were asking about... Um, having the certainty 
of, of faith. And Hume would, would try to rule out anything like that. Uh, and, mm-hmm. and the base, you know, if you think about this, it's kind of interesting. What's the basis on which Hume does that? Is, is, you know, is it really impossible for a person to have certainty? Well, if you're a good Humean following along with a lot of Hume's principles, you couldn't rule that out. Mm-hmm. What he's going to do is he's going to say, well, that's something like fanaticism or what he calls enthusiasm. Uh, usually okay. when he says enthusiasm, he means, you know, fanaticism. And what you have to do for somebody like Hume is really make other people's uh, other people's presumed views on things kind of the rule for, for what you ought to believe in, if that makes any sense to, to say that. So it would be sort of like this. I have a, a religious experience, mm-hmm. and, I, and I have some, you know, absolutely firm conviction that God himself, you know, spoke to me or, or implanted some idea in my, my mind or my heart, and I come to you mm-hmm. and I say, ah, I've got this, you know, this wonderful thing has happened to me, and then you say, well, I, I haven't had that experience, um, so I'm a little bit skeptical of what you're saying here. Um, can, you, yeah. can you walk me through it, right? And I start explaining it to you, and you say, well, that, that could have been, you know, let's do a Dickens kind of thing, that, you know, with the, the ghosts, when he sees the ghosts. Um, right. Uh, in, in the Christmas story, that could be a blot of mustard that you're digesting, you know. And you can come up right. with all sorts of explanations for that. And it would be kind of weird for me to say, oh, yeah, a lot of mustard. That's probably what it was. It wasn't God at all, right? Um, <laughs> but, but you get the idea that with Hume, that's really, you know, oh, yeah, it could have been a lot of mustard. So, therefore, let, let's, let's, you know, if we, can, if we can ever ascribe something to a lower cause than to, to some sort of higher cause that we don't really know that well or understand that well, let's do the lower cause. And let's try to even out experience so most people's experience looks more or less the same. And I think that religious experience by its very nature isn't going to fit that matrix very well. Right. You know? it, so if you, start out by, if you start out by ruling out certain kinds of experiences as experiences, well, of course, you're not going to believe anybody ever has them. You're going to believe that it's just the working of their passions, you know, causing okay. them to imagine. Yes, you know. Does that that make sense? Well, so Hume Hume wants to start with experience, right? And and building the edifice yeah. of knowledge. Is that correct? Yeah. He just wants to take normal everyday experience, because that's why he says, you know, we don't have any justifiable reason to believe that when one billiard ball hits another, it's going to go in the direction that we normally would expect it. It could fly off in another direction, you know, uh, I think he says that. I was, I did a short paper on, uh, on, on this a uh, couple months ago. Didn't do very well on it, but <laughs> anyways. That's okay. So, yeah, C+. Plus. But anyways, um, so, you know, he says it could kind of fly off, and, and so then the other, you know, the responses that I read uh, were that, well, what we need to do is understand that Hume denies like a principle of uniformity I think it is or maybe his his starting point is wrong and that, and that's where you know some of the other philosophers pointed to you know Augustine and uh, you know things like that is, is that yeah. is that what Hume's fatal well, flaw is is it his starting point um, I would say yes but I would say it's a different starting point that his, his fatal flaw is I don't, I don't think it's so much about the, the issue of um, 
whether we can, you know, sort of have causal reasoning working. He he right. thinks that yeah, you're right. When when we when we look at con- the connection of cause and effect, what we're really doing there is is a process of habit and association. So, uh, you know, we play pool, a whole bunch of games, and shoot the billiard balls around, and. Um, you know, every time that I, I shoot the cue ball at this ball, it actually does connect with it, and it makes it go off in a certain direction. But it could go yeah. off, load in space. Now, I don't think that it's going to do that, and Hume doesn't right. think that it's going to do that, because we've built up these, these patterns of association. So if we're remaining within the realm of experience, okay. um, we're not, we're not going to think that it's doing that. But if we, re- if, we, if we remain within the realm of experience, we've really limited ourselves, Right. Oh, that's right. Now, I remember. I remember yeah. that. Now, if we want to, you know, engage in the imagination, or we want to reason about it, then we then we can say, well, you know, it could go differently, and, and we don't really know for certain that it's not going to do that. And once we start admitting those sorts of things, then you know, people like Kant get very worried, and they say, whoa, whoa, causality. We got to have that. Um, yeah. And. Hume is saying, well, you know, that's that's really just within the realm of the mind, the, the connections of ideas, um, and that's not what the or, you know. He actually divides philosophy into three three different things. He talks about like the ordinary Joe on the street doesn't worry uh-huh. about any of this sort of stuff. He just shoots the pool balls, and you know, if it goes in the pocket, great, and if it doesn't, then he gives the cue that's, to the next that's guy. That's the kind of guy I like, actually. Okay. I mean, as much as I like to read philosophy and do this stuff, I pretty much consider myself that, that person, you know. Well, anyway. and that's what Hume thinks, thinks most people actually are. And, and they're not going to worry. I mean, if, if they really probe down to its very roots, then they would see that causality is not as reliable as we, we think it is. But they don't do that. Uh-huh. And so, right. you know, that that's fine. And then... Then there's the philosophers, and for the most part, these are the people who are trying to probe down into it, and then they start getting all worried about, oh my, you know, anything could be anything, and I can't really be certain about anything, and they turn into skeptics. And then he says, right. you can't really do that for very long. And so he, he ends up taking a third position um, where you know that both of the other two positions are, are kind of wrong. And yeah. just go and live your life and try to stick with the realm of experience, day-to-day experience, not, you know, any experience of the divine or, or anything like that. Just day-to-day experience and, and live your life as best you can, and then, you know, you won't be so, so troubled by that. And, and you could say, well, how is that any different than the guy on the street? Well, right. because the human, you know, at, in this third place, knows that he's doing something different on the street. Um, but he's really, you know, it really boils down to kind of the same thing. Um, so is this where uh, you know, the pragmatism of John Stuart Mill comes from, on the one hand, and then uh, the appeal to experience alone uh, and, uh, you know, your passions and these things, these kinds of things, is this where, is this what feeds into the existentialism? of the 20th century and the other? Well, that's that's kind of an interesting question. Um, Hume is influential on Mill, yeah, because Hume is one of the big heavy hitters, and you can't avoid him in the, uh, the uh, British philosophical scene. And Mill's trying to go even further with his empiricism. 
and will argue, like Hume thought that mathematics is, is, you know, connections of ideas. Mill wants to find an experiential basis even for mathematics. And he kind of, according to most people, he fails in that. And I don't really know mm-hmm. about the philosophy of mathematics to, to, to make a judgment on that. Okay. Uh, with, the, with, with the existentialists, so here I'm going to actually like, I'm going to tell a story and I'm going to backtrack a little bit. So Hume is coming after this guy, Barclay. And Barclay was a bishop. So he's a yeah. admitted Christian um, theist. And Barclay's the guy who's really famous for having said there's no such thing as matter. That it's all just, you know, our experience and, you know, um, what actually holds... That's idealism, together. right? Yeah, it's a form of idealism. And what actually holds everything together so that we can actually have the same experiences, God is actually witnessing everything in existence at the same time. So when I open, when I when the door is closed, I don't know if you know it's turned into a a, a wild chaos outside or whether everything is retained its its space. But since God exists, everything stays in, in proper order. Now imagine oh. Bark. Now imagine Barkley if you took God out of the picture. What would you have? You would have your own experience, yeah. and you would have maybe you know you could extend it by talking to other people and saying, "Hey, what's down that hallway? I can't see there. What are you seeing?" And so we could have kind of like a social network of expanding the experience, but everything else would be like totally up for grabs, and yeah. we wouldn't we wouldn't know anything. Now let's think about Hume for for a second. So let's say causality really isn't what we, we think it is. And, and things are really just associations of ideas. Now, Hume has something sort of like God in the picture. It's not God. It's the constancy of human nature. And if you remove that constancy of human nature from Hume's uh, empirical, associational psychology, now what's to say that I'm actually going to associate my experiences the same way that you do or that if we go from one culture to right. another or in time you know from one epoch to another that we're we're actually going to be able to translate between these if you take that out of the picture then things become a lot more up for grabs now that's not getting you necessarily to existentialism per se but it's getting you closer to it it's getting you closer to something like a Nietzschean perspectivalism isn't it uh-huh. It's, not, it's not getting you to Kierkegaard's existentialism or, you know, um, Gabriel, Mar- Gabriel Marcel's existentialism, because these are, these are religious believers. But uh-huh. it gets you a lot closer to people like Sartre or to um, the Nietzsche. Okay. So, now, is there, is there any sort of direct influence of Hume on the existentialist? No. As a matter of fact, they, they seem to think he's kind of an old stick in the mud. Um, Except for Shestoff. Shestoff actually, and Shestoff is not a very well-known figure, Shestoff is actually um, somebody who thinks that Kierkegaard is not extreme enough and goes even further beyond him. So Shestoff is kind of like turning Hume inside out and using him to, uh, to, to argue for, for uh, um, why, why would you rule God out of the picture? If, if, you know, if it's possible that the billiard ball could go off into space, why couldn't there be a God? And that's kind of a caricature of Shestoff's arguments. But, um, oh. but he's got this, this beautiful um, 
I'll tell you about this, this metaphor that Shestov has. He talks about this experiment that this guy did with, with a pike. And um, he puts, you know, he puts a, a glass um, wall into a tank, and there's the pike, you know, one of these voracious predatory fish on, on one side, and there's all these other fish on the other side that the pike uh-huh. would like to eat. And so it bumps itself into the glass over and over and over and over again. And then after a while, it figures out, hey, every time I go after these fish, I bump my nose, and that hurts like hell. I better knock this off. And so when they, when they remove the glass, what do you think the pike does? It just sits there. It, it even swims among the other fish, and it doesn't eat them. And Shestov says, that's, that's us that we have come to accept that there is no other world, that there, you know, the, the dividing, the, the, the portion between, or partition between this world and whatever else would, would be there, you know, whatever else is divine, that it's totally impermeable. And unless we keep bumping our nose into the glass, unless we keep trying, we'll never know if the partition goes up or not. And the partition may never go up. It could, it could be, the, you know, this, this tragic experiment that uh, has terrible consequences that we totally waste our lives. But unless we actually try, unless we try to make contact, unless we try to experiment, try to have experience, we'll never know. So that's what Shestov does with somebody like him. Long, long answer to a pretty short question, I'm afraid. No, yeah, well, no. It, it just, it seems like, um, well, I mean, it just seems like we're at the behest of the, the monster of probability, you know, we're in this quagmire, and uh, we just have to keep trudging along for hope that it'll end someday. Well, um, what, what, do you, what do you think is so bad about, about probability? I mean, I think there's some things that we would want to say are matters of probability, right? Yeah, I don't know if I know enough about it, but um, I guess, um, well, certainty certainly is desirable, don't you think? I mean, I I don't want to probably, I don't want to believe that, you know. Oh, that God probably exists, yeah. I don't want to believe that God probably exists or that, Jesus is probably the risen <laughs> Son of God. You know, I, I you know I want to know that for certainty, for certain. Yeah. You know what I mean? Uh, so for me, you know, as a Christian, um, the problem of induction, I think, is a is a really important topic to discuss. Uh, you know, it's yeah. not for me. I'm not thinking of, you know, when I pull the when I pull the plug out, will the oil fall out of my car engine? Oh, no. You know what I mean? Uh, even yeah. though it's all related, you know what I mean? Yeah, you know, Kierkegaard, in, in his philosophical fragments, he's, he's, uh, he's making a criticism of arguments about God's existence. And he talks about um, probability and this notion that, we well, if we can just like get a little bit more probable and a little bit more probable, eventually we get to something kind of like certainty. He says, you never get to certainty that way. And, and so he's saying something very much along Yeah, what was the phrase he used for that? I can't remember. Um, uh, it was the approximation process? Well, he, he, didn't call, he didn't call it that per se. He just said, um, he didn't name the process. He said, this okay. is what a lot of people who are making arguments for God's existence are doing, is just trying to like say, well, if you, you know, this will get us halfway, and then this will get us, 
know, three quarters of the way, and then you just keep kind of piling them up. Uh, and he says, that, that's, that's not going to work. What we want, and now Kierkegaard is not going to try to do it through rational argumentation. Mm-hmm. He will say you have to have this passionate commitment of, uh, of faith, you know, what, what a lot of people call the leap of faith. Um, and that uh, for Kierkegaard, at, at bottom, it really is something affective rather than intellectual. Mm. Okay. But, you know, that's just well, Kierkegaard. So. No, yeah, you asked me a good question about why am I so concerned about probability or what problem do I have with it. It just seems like just for the day-to-day guy, you know, you mentioned um, the second guy, you know, who's just the radical skeptic. Um, yeah. I it, To me, it seems like if the problem of induction is not resolved with having uh, an epistemological theory that gives us certainty for causation in the natural world, then mm-hmm. uh, I, I can, you know, for me, I can see myself being that second guy, just like, man, is the lawnmower going to turn on? Is this knife going to cut the apple? Is... You know, are yeah. these steps going to fall underneath me? You, you, you know, it would just I would think it would drive somebody insane. <laughs> well, I'm sure it has some, probably at one point or another. <laughs> yeah, they're called philosophers, Chris. What's that? I, I said, yeah, they're they're called philosophers. It's they're, called philosophers. <laughs> they're called philosophers. <laughs> well, there's kind of a self-selection against that, though, because if you really had that point of view, imagine if you if you really saw the world in, in, in that sort of anything could happen at any time, I can't trust anything sort of way. You'd, you'd never actually read anything because, you know, why read a book? Because it's going to, you know, turn into a fish as soon as you, or, or maybe burst into flames. Um, right. It would be impossible to make any sort of decision. And so, right. the, you know, you certainly couldn't make it through a philosophy program and go and teach, right? Um, right. So there's kind of there's kind of a self-selection in the very processes that that militates against there being a ton of uh, total skeptics in, in philosophy departments. So um, it, is it, it without without like a, a, you know an epistemological paradigm of, of of absolute certainty? Do we have to resort to to like a pragmatic? view of life, uh, given the problem of skepticism, then? Well, that's a good question. Um, and am I taking up too much time? Do I? Is there anybody else that wants to chime in? I feel like uh, I'm 26 minutes here with my own private philosopher. It's pretty cool. Devin? Is, is there anyone else, Devin? Uh, I know. Sorry about that. I'm having some, some phone issues, but no, Chris, uh, you got another question, too? Okay. Well, Anyways. so so we so we have the time then. Okay. So um, yeah, without the, some sort of epistemological foundation, are we right. are we stuck um, going into something like pragmatism, where truth is, right. is uh, as James called it, what works or the cash value of the idea? Um, yeah, probably so. I think that there's 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 a number of different ways in which you could you could come up with different epistemological foundations. And then how do we choose between those? That's, that's where, um, you know, yeah. Uh, yeah. people get, get hung up. 
Um, so are you, are you a theist then? I'm a well. I, I never describe myself as as a theist. I just say, well, I'm a Christian philosopher. And oh, so, okay, you're a Christian. Okay, well, I, I didn't really know how to you know ask yeah, the question without sounding uh, dogmatic or anything like that. So okay, you so know, a Christian. Um, yeah, you know, the, we live in a very sensitive day and age. Um, yeah. And Duck Dynasty, anybody? But um, <laughs> that's Bill Robertson about that one, right? <laughs> right. So I was just wondering, uh, if, you know, what you think about, like, say, Alvin Plantinga's properly basic, you know, like his mild foundationalism. Yeah, I, I, um, I know a lot of people like Plantinga. Um, I, I don't, uh, I don't spend a lot of time um, on philosophers in the analytic tradition. Um, right. Because I'm more in history of philosophy and. Uh, Me you know, too, especially after reading Planninga, I definitely do not like analytic philosophy. <laughs> yeah, I, I, actually it's interesting because Plantinga himself has a uh, an article, which I do like, called Advice to Christian Philosophers. Yeah. Um, and it's, it sparked some, some discussion. He was, he was keen to point out some of the... Um, some of the uh, commitments that, that, that doing analytic philosophy tends to steer people into and how it, mm. could, be, it could be troubling for Christian philosophers. But I, you know, mm. the whole idea of Christian philosophy, um, that gets discussed much better by, by a lot of these European figures. Um, but that's, that's sort of a side note. So um, this, the, the same thing as project, I think there's problems with it because if you want to make that kind of of um, appeal to things being uh-huh. properly basic. Why, why these things being properly basic for, for me? And, and why couldn't somebody from a different religion simply say, well, these things are properly basic for me? And, and there's actually a guy who's, uh, uh, who's, who's doing quite a bit of work on this. He, he's analytically trained. Um, trying to remember his name offhand, Eric, Eric something or other, uh, who I think right now is teaching at Notre Dame. Um, Eric, Eric Baldwin, that's his name. And he's, he's pointing out a lot, of, a lot of problems when you start looking at, um, start looking across the religious spectrum with trying to use planting it. Because it seems like it, it commits us to way too much, doesn't it? I mean, if, if I can just because I, I think something is properly basic, I can say, well, you know, you, uh, I, I can accept this, and, and you probably should accept it too. Then mm-hmm. where do we draw the lines, you know? Right. Yeah, I don't know if he ever really resolved the great pumpkin problem, you know. Um, yeah. I, yeah. I don't know how you avoid so, relativism, really, on the properly basic uh, model. Yeah, I, I do like the notion... And it's kind of coming from somebody like 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 Wittgenstein. Sooner or later, we have to hit bedrock, and we can't just like keep right. asking the question, why, 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 forever. That it, right. that like what, my six-year-old. Yeah, I mean, what's good in Plantica's approach is that he's sort of like saying to the people arguing against theism, hey, look, you don't get to shift the burden of proof indefinitely onto everybody else all the time. Sure. Man, at a certain point, we get to actually believe in things. Um, and so that's, that's a good side to what he's doing, I think. Sure. Um, 
But yeah, I, I, I don't. Uh, I, I have to admit, I, I haven't. I haven't. You know, I probably haven't given the approach as much time or, yeah. or energy as I, I ought to. But but then again, you have only got so many hours in the day. So if I have to, well, well here's a here's a really more, easy question for you then. A really easy sure. one. So what is the epistemological foundation, if any, that is available for human beings? For human beings? Yeah. What is it? Told you it was easy. Yeah, well, it's not an easy question. <laughs> I mean, I, this is one of those sort of things that I don't, I don't tend to, to think about too much myself. Oh, okay. Um, there's a there's a number of different. It's sort of like you know there's all these different philosophers and and they've got their own different uh, answers to that question and you can and you, okay. you can pick among them if you want to. Um, yeah. You could be a Cartesian or you could you know you you could actually there probably are some people who are Barclayans, although I don't know any myself. Sure. Um, so. I don't know. It's not one of those things that I'm particularly well equipped to talk about. Mm. What, what do you like to study and, and think about? Good deal. I'm sorry, it was a little garbled. Uh, he was asking, what, what, is your, what is your field that you like to study? And, Chris, we actually got uh, some other callers, so i got to let you go. But that was oh, he great just tells those people to get lost, man. Yeah, you just did, I think. <laughs> uh, Hey, thanks your, a lot, Dr. Sadler. Appreciate talking with you. You're welcome. Okay, bye-bye. All right. Talk to you later, Chris. All right, I think i got another one of my friends here on the line, and we'll go ahead and, and uh, bring him on. Caller, are you there? Yes, I'm here. Hey, is it Matt? Can you hear me? Yeah, this is Matt. I can, I can hear you. Can you hear me okay? All right, you had a question or a comment for Dr. Sadler? Yeah, and I'm sorry I came in a little late, so uh, I apologize if I'm asking you something you've already addressed. Um, I'm actually interested in uh, um, Hume's view of free will. Oh. I think if, if it would be interesting elaborating on that at all. Yeah, I didn't talk anything about that. Um it's not something that, that, that um, I've looked at for a long time. Uh, if I remember, he talks about that um, mainly in, in the, the, the treatise on human nature. And I remember being puzzled by it because it didn't seem, you know, there's, there's an issue with, with Hume and, and Locke and Hobbes where if you start poking at their notion of the will, it all kind of unravels and you're like, well, what do you actually think the will is? Um, you know, for Hobbes, it's, it's totally uh, transparent because he says it's just the last, you know, thing in our process of, of sort of working out our desires. That's what your will is, whatever it is that you happen to choose. With Locke, he's got this notion of the faculty of the will, but it kind of, you know, it doesn't, it doesn't really add up to anything, and it's hard to figure out how it's free in any sense other than um, being able to choose between alternatives or, or something like that. And with Hume, I, you know, if I remember right, it's along the same lines as, as that. Um, now, 
Hume also thinks that you can draw some really strong generalizations about uh, what human activities are going to be based on your knowledge of human nature. So in the, if I remember right, this is in the, the, the uh, inquiry regarding the human understanding, or it might be, it might be in the other inquiry. He says that um, if you think about a jailer, right, uh, somebody who's guarding a jail, their resolve to keep that person behind bars is more of an impediment than those physical bars are. That that person can be, you know, more fixed. And, and there's ways that we can actually know this, Hume intimates. Now, if that's really the case, um, is there much scope for what, you know, any sort of robust notion of free will? I, I don't think so. But I, you know, that's, a, that's an issue on which I, I'm sorry. That's an issue on which I could be, I could be wrong. Okay. Yeah, in I'm my, wondering in my interpretation. Go ahead. No, my, my understanding was he's sort of a classical statement of compatibilism. Um, I didn't know if you had any thoughts regarding that, like if, if that's a good way to classify him as a compatibilist. Yeah, I think that's what most people do. They talk about Hume in terms of soft determinism, which is supposed to fit somehow into the compatibilist spectrum. Um, you know, Hume was very influenced by Cicero in a lot of respects. And, and Cicero has uh, discussions of, of this sort of thing in um, a book called the, the Stoic Paradoxes. And he talks about something like soft determinism where, because the Stoics were, you know, they were committed to the notion that, that events were deterministic. So then if that's the case, then why decide to do anything, right? That's the problem of determinism. And they said, well, the big picture stuff is kind of determined. Like you have your temperament that you're born with and, and uh, you know, but you get to choose what you do with that. You have this little bit of uh, leeway that you have control over. And I think that's, that's similar to what, what Hume is making of it. Um, for me, you know, I'm always interested when I hear somebody talked about as a compatibilist with figuring out exactly how they're a compatibilist. You know, I, a lot of people in, in, in philosophy of action where these terms come up, they seem to be mainly interested in how can we classify people. Can we say that they're determinists, libertarians, or compatibles? I'm, I'm less interested in, in that. I'm more interested in, well, if you're a compatibilist, how the hell does this work? How does the will actually get determined, and yet you have some sort of measure of, of uh, control or, or contribution to it, you know? Um, Isn't that usually the... Uh, I'm sorry. Isn't that usually no, the uh, attractive thing about compatibilism is that it does seem to offer something like that? That it yeah, offers and, and the how. The, exactly. There's, there's the that. The compatibilist is claiming that that's the case. And then what's really interesting about it is providing some sort of account that tells us how. How that could be the case. Um, Yeah, I'm, I'm sorry. I have a, a crying baby back here too. Um, oh, that's okay. I'm, 
Yeah, I'm, like I'm interested actually, because especially since you're a uh, uh, you're very interested in the history of philosophy, um, and I I know you guys are a little off, been a little bit off topic with Hume, so I don't be don't if this question is too far off base by all means I understand. Um, but as a you know you do the history of philosophy, do you find it difficult translating? say, the thought of uh, Aristotle or some of the medievals into contemporary analytic terminology? Um, well, I don't work in contemporary analytic terminology, so I'm spared that, that issue of, of you know, worrying okay. about that. There's, there's a broader philosophical terminology um, that's, that's more classical that is, is what I use. And, and when I talk to analytics, I usually have to spend a lot of time saying, now, what do you guys actually mean by this term, and what do you mean by this term? Because depending on who they're reading, you know, a, a term can mean all sorts of different things. It, it's sort of like the problem that the, the early moderns were noting about scholastic uh, theology. They just sort of make up terms and then, you know, introduce a whole bunch of distinctions, and you'd be like, well, what, what the hell does this mean, you know? And um, so, you know, I the... I don't end up having to translate Aristotle in, into to stuff like that. And there's enough people out there interested in Aristotle um, that we can, you know, we can use a lot of his terminology. Like we can talk about acrasia, you know, and, and, and if we need to gloss at his lack of self-control, we can do that. And uh, we, you know, we don't have to try to find some sort of... Uh, who, who knows who, who we'd, we'd use these days, you know. I mean, we're long past the time of Quine or Davidson or things like that for who, who our vocabulary would derive from. I'm not even sure who we'd, we'd look to. Um, but, you know, in the history of philosophy, that doesn't seem to be too big of a problem. Um, what doesn't seem to be too big of a problem? Having to translate things into the sort of refined, abstract terminology of, of analytic philosophers. Um, I suppose because the history of philosophy is so closely connected with the other humanities, you know? And, and they, um, they're they still using their own sort of uh, vocabulary that, that's more uh, more classical. I, I'm, you know, I'm, yeah. I'm not knocking analytic philosophy. By the way, it's it's got it's got um, they've made some interesting contributions in the 20th century on some some issues, and um, there's some of them who I like to read quite a bit. Usually, some of the off kilter figures like uh, uh, John Wisdom and, and Ambrose and and uh, Anscombe and people like that. Um, people a lot of times doing philosophy of action stuff. Um, but it is, you know, it does take, there's a, like a learning curve. If you want to do analytic philosophy, you have to take some time to figure out um, what they mean by these terms in these articles and in these discourses. Or what analytic philosophy even is. Yeah. I, I mean, there's I, the same problem. What's that? No, I'm sorry. I, I was just saying, I, I, I'm trying to look, I guess I'm looking for a little guidance in terms of, um, because I, I am interested in contemporary problems. Um, mm -hmm. Right now I'm looking more into the nature of free will and that kind of stuff. But uh, I'm interested in also taking, um, like what Aquinas would say on it, or Aristotle or whoever, and 
bring, yeah. bring their thoughts to bear on contemporary analytic problems, even though I'm not really, and I'm not an analytic, and I'm not really, in a similar vein, well, I'm not really interested in being an analytic. I just, but you still got to talk about lingo if you want. Yeah, here's what I would suggest. Um, they're not contemporary problems. They're classic problems. And there are contemporary discourses about those problems. And they're part of a long, long history that, you know, at the, at the, the, the pale end of that history where we are now has some, some analytics talking about it and some continentals talking about it, some, some classic historians um, talking about it. But then it goes back in time you know, to include people like, like Aquinas or Augustine or Aristotle. And they're all parts of the, the conversation. The problems are not fundamentally new. Um, some of the discourses about them are. And, yeah, if you want to, you know, if you, if you want to get things across to a Kantian, you have to know something about Kant's weird terminology that he uses, uh, let alone if you want to talk to a Hegelian, you know, you got to learn some things about, you know, what dialectic means and all that. But it's sort of like mastering a language, you know. Once, once you've done that, you can sort of more or less get by. You can figure out how to order food, how to get yourself a coffee, how to find the train station, you know. Um, and so, you know... It, that's really all, all, all it is, I think, when it comes to those sorts of problems, like free will. Free will has been discussed for for uh, two millennia, you know. Um, so, so don't get discouraged, I would say, about that, that sort of thing. And, um, you know, I, I want to say the Continentals do their own sort of thing with this, too. They have lots and lots of terminology that uh, they like to throw around. Um, you know, the, the real test for anybody, if you're doing philosophy, is can you actually explain yourself to somebody who doesn't belong to your particular philosophical tradition uh, and get across at least some of your ideas? If you can't do that, then you're really kind of just playing a game, you know, in your own little private, private area. With, with, you know, your friends who talk the same language. You, you know, if, if philosophy is going to matter, it's got to be something that can speak to people across the ages, across cultures. Um, but, you know, there's, there's my soapbox speech about that. So, so, you know, long story short, don't get discouraged. It, it just takes a little time to learn how to talk to, to people from different philosophical traditions. And, and uh, you know, it's, I think it's a good thing to do. Well, thank you. All right. Appreciate you calling, Matt. Yeah, thank Look you. Look forward to talking to you again soon, buddy. God bless. Yeah. God so bless. Dr. Sadler, one, uh, one issue I wanted us maybe to address, we've got about 15 minutes. Um, we talked about David Hume and miracles and kind of the, oh, yeah. the, yeah, the argument he levels against miracles. How do Christians, how are we to respond uh, to some of those arguments? Because like you said, if you don't have miracles... You know, First Corinthians uh, 15 really puts the resurrection as the centerpiece of the Christian faith. And if the resurrection can't happen, then, then we eat, drink, and be merry, for tomorrow we, we die. So how do we answer yeah. uh, David Hume on miracles? So let's, let's be clear about what Hume is, is saying. He's not, he's not coming out and totally ruling miracles out as such. 
his attack is a bit more subtle. He's saying um, a miracle would be a violation of the laws of nature. So that, you know, so far so good. And he says, our experience shows us that these laws just aren't violated. So if we want to claim that something has happened that did violate these laws of nature, then um, what would convince us of that? I mean, we could see it ourselves, and then we got to be careful, are we really seeing what we think that we see? And, or we could, we could uh, hear it from testimony from somebody else, so like the resurrection, for example. I mean, you and, you and I are in you know, the year 2013. If we want to believe in the resurrection, we don't have a time machine to go back to you know, Palestine and uh, hang out for a couple of days and see what happens around Easter time, right? So right. we're believing it on somebody's testimony. So here's what, what Hume... Here's, here's sort of the linchpin of his argument. He says, and he's using the, the, the resurrection for this. When anyone tells me that he saw a dead man restored to life, I immediately consider with myself whether it be more probable that this person should either deceive or be deceived or that the fact which he relates should really have happened. I weigh the one miracle against the other, he says. So which is more, So we, we have to decide which is more probable, that um, the, the person who's reporting the miracle either is trying to trick us or is deluded themselves um, or that the event took place. And, and it's, you know, the way that he's stacking the deck is, look, you know, if it's violating the laws of nature, that, that makes it very, very improbable. So just about anybody's witness testimony is going to be um, – more likely to be impeachable than that the, the miracle happened. So how could you attack this, this argument? So different people have, have, have approached it in different ways. You could, you could try to say, well, actually the witnesses are good witnesses, and, you know, here's why, and, and, and people give various reasonings for that. You know, um, some, some could be that... Uh, you know, you can make an appeal directly to God and say uh, the Holy Spirit guarantees, you know, some sort of authenticity of these, these, these uh, reporting of these events, right? I mean, there's a lot of different ways in which this is done. But um, you could also attack his notion of laws of nature. And you could say, well, Hume... Where are you getting this laws of nature business from, given right. that you're the empiricist, and, uh, you know, you hold out that things could be quite different, and you try to emphasize on just about every other topic, um, particularly when it comes to religion, that we can't make, you know, these, these arguments based on probability. Um, how, how, much of, how much of nature have you experienced? Uh, and so that's, that's another attack that, that people take. Um, some people would... make arguments. Go ahead. Oh, yeah, I was just, just going to say, I remember, you know, sitting in, uh, in Dr. Uh, Norm Geisler's class on Christian apologetics, and we, you know, dealt with, with him, and he brought up some good points, like, um, you know, for the naturalists, they believe with the origin of life, you know, that that happened naturally in a natural process, but the, the odds of that are just so incredible, or even uh, a person winning the lottery, you know, it's just incredible odds of that happening. So it would it almost seem as if you were to take that logic and apply it, I and mean, you, shouldn't, you shouldn't believe in the origin of the universe, you shouldn't believe in the origin of life, you shouldn't believe in the, you know, the first 
complex, you know, biological organisms to reproduce and 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 all that. Does, would, would that yeah, follow? Yeah, I suppose any, any any one of those could be quite different than than it actually turns out to be from a human perspective. You know, he can't rule out that possibility. Um, once you let the once you let that skeptical genie out of the bottle, it's hard to shove it back yeah. in, and it's hard to make it only do your bidding. You know, um, so I mean, those are those are ways that you could you could attack it. You could also, um, I suppose, you know, it's, it's interesting. Saint Anselm, he's he's talking about the problem of miracles, and he talks about the natural order. Um, and uh, the, what he calls the voluntary order, because he distinguishes that from the purely natural order. And then he talks about um, God's action. He says, well, you know, I mean, God owns the natural order, so if he wants to make exceptions at this point or another, um, that's perfectly within his, his rights to do, because he's the one who set all this stuff up. And not, you know, people could say, well, that's unbefitting to God. Uh, a lot of Enlightenment thinkers would, would do those sorts of arguments. You know, God should have set things up in such a way as to, uh, you know, uh, accomplish the, the greatest effects with the least amount of, of starting points or laws or, or principles. Um, but, you know, to any of those sort of things, you could say, now, how can you be so certain of that and be so uncertain of so many other other thing, if you're going in you know, a vacuum, and you're, if you're going to rule out everybody's a priori reasoning and say, oh, yeah, that's so weak, you know, uh, you can't possibly be convinced by that. Well, why do you find that one single line of reasoning so convincing? Isn't there some, you know, exception going on or some sort of inconsequence or uh, contradiction? It also it also seems almost as though this this view of the miracles that he gives. It almost like uh, it's kind of defining the rules of the game, and it defines miracles right out of the game because, by definition, miracles are going to be rare occurrences. So it's, yeah. It's kind of, uh, and, and you know, it's interesting. This is somewhat of a tangent. It's not it's not so much about miracles as such, but um, in in the natural history of religion, when when Hume is saying, you know, people don't look at the universe and say, wow, I'm going to do some natural theology now and, you know, figure out that there's an omnipotent, all-powerful, all right, that's, that's a Plato, somebody said the same thing twice, uh, omnipotent, omniscient, perfect, infinite, uh, all-good creator, uh, transcendent to the universe, um, he says, People don't do that because they, they see the regularities in nature and then they're not interested in that. They don't pay attention to what's regular. It's what's out of the ordinary that strikes them. And so they pay attention to that and they get worried about that and they get excited about that. And that's where this, this notion of God's comes from for them. Not, not from natural theology, which would be looking at what's perfectly regular, because um, that, you know, we never pay attention to. Um, except for us philosophers, and we're totally rare. Uh, instead, it's, it's the unusual events. So if that can actually get things going for belief in, in, in deities in a polytheistic system, why couldn't people attend to unusual events in other circumstances? You know, what's, what's so huge about that? So there's, again, there's kind of a... Um, 
a lack of consistency in him. But I mean, you can, to be fair, you can you can point out a lack of consistency in most philosophers when you dig deep enough. I think. Ah, uh, that's that's true. Take uh, take two minutes, Dr. Sadler, and wrap us up. Okay. Um, Do you have any, any well, loose ends you wanted to tie up? Or? Well, we've talked about quite a few things. I did actually have um, one of my, um, I don't remember whether it was a YouTube or Facebook uh, subscriber, who asked if I would talk a little bit about the difference between Kant and, and him. And so I said that if, if there weren't a lot of questions, I would actually um, mention that. And he wanted to know about their, their, their views on morality and God, if I remember right. So um, Hume, Hume is, is setting the stage, and then Kant is reacting to it. And Kant deals with this very, you know, very short sketch. Kant deals with Hume's problem of causality by saying, we project that out onto the world. Everything like causality is not actually out there in the world. We human beings, that's something we project so we can make sense out of it. And Kant is going to go even further than Hume is in ruling out proofs for God's existence. Um, he's going to say that they all fail, except for the one that he brings forward towards the end. Um, and, and instead of like Hume... Um, attacking cosmological arguments and attacking uh, design arguments, Kant actually makes the claim that they all boil down in one way or another to the ontological argument. And the argument for that is really quite quite uh, difficult to, to wrap your head around, let alone to try to explain, so I'm not going to try to do that here. Um, but then Kant will actually give his own new argument which people call the moral argument, basically that uh, we have to postulate God existing or else morality wouldn't make sense. It wouldn't, uh, we couldn't imagine a universe in which, um, you know, uh, those who are virtuous, those who actually practice morality would not receive some sort of reward. We must imagine some sort of infinite, you know, rewarder, and so that, that's God. And, and so I guess there's sort of a thumbnail sketch. Again, not, not uh, going into, into these figures and doing them justice, but those are some of the comparisons and contrasts between these, these two great Enlightenment thinkers. All right, well, let's do this because we're, we're out of time. But let's, um, we'll talk, and, and uh, maybe it'd be good to do uh, Emmanuel Kant next, do a show on him, if you think. Okay. I'll uh, I'll shoot you an email and you can think whatever what one you want to do next and we'll set it up and get you back on. It's, it's been a really a great series. Yeah, that it was a lot of fun. I, I really enjoyed uh, these uh, these questions and uh, the chance to talk a bit about this this paradoxical phil philosophical figure. And uh, yeah, we'll, we'll we'll continue the the philosopher series. We might back up a, a bit in time again. I'm not sure who we want to do next. I'll let you I'll let you kind of guide us and decide on that. And um, I'm thinking maybe end of January or early February if you're available. Okay. Well, we'll check we'll check the calendar. All right. So have thanks for have a, a mer merry Christmas and a merry Christmas to all of your your listeners and a happy New Year. And 
I hope everybody's year coming up is fruitful and uh, full of a lot of good things. I appreciate you, Dr. Sadler. Thanks for giving us your time, and thank your wife and your kids for sparing you for two hours. Really appreciate it. On their behalf, uh, you're welcome. All right. Thanks again, folks, for joining us, and join us again next week on Theology Matters. God bless. Cause death couldn't hold him The spotlight is on Today's icons In a thousand years Nobody will care That light's gone But at that time Christ will still shine bright He's not in the limelight He is the limelight Criminal minded You've been blinded Looking for the body of Jesus You won't find it We never lack spirit Letting you can't hear it Cause it's human's empty Like most secular rap lyrics Plato is dead Socrates is dead Aristotle and Emmanuel Kant are dead Nietzsche and Darwin are dead However, Jesus is alive yeah. Buddha is dead, Muhammad is dead Gandhi and Holly, Salafi are dead Elijah Muhammad is dead However, Jesus is alive yeah. Throughout history, there's been mad religious leaders Prophets, preachers, scholars, teachers But when it came to the grave, no one could climb out That's when Jesus stands alone, like taking a time out And don't be misled, I got a level head No resurrection, Christianity would've never spread The disciples weren't stupid gods who would ruin their lives And then choose to die for what they knew was a lie That would be beyond ridiculous Not an issue is the risen Christ seen by 500 eyewitnesses Imagine 500 people in a court of law Each of them taking a Stand reporting what they saw If their stories lined up and made sense The evidence would have to leave you convinced No doubt But still it's by faith that we trust and praise the son Who was raised for our justification Check it out Zero is 